Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a trombone player, band leader, and Grammy-nominated arranger, John Fredchuk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, I have the honor of having one of my favorite big band arrangers of all time here. Sir, could you please introduce yourself? My name is John Fedchuk. And uh, I'm a composer, arranger, trombonist. I live in New York City. Okay, that's short. I'll take that. (laughs) One thing I must say, though, is during the lockdown, when I wanted to listen to big band music... I was always in rotation with your stuff, mainly because of the way you record it. It made me feel like I was in the jazz club, especially your set tet albums. So I'm more than happy to have you on the show. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I've been, I've been in New York for about 33 years now, and uh, I have t- uh, 10 albums out under my own name and uh, several big band albums and, uh, and also small group recordings. So... I've uh, had plenty of uh, experience in the studios to to kind of help with all that. Okay, well, where did you study? Let's start there. Well, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of got turned on to jazz in high school and uh, was a little bit behind the curve, but uh, was really, really motivated. I went to Ohio State for my undergrad years and uh, with... Uh, my main inspiration when I was in high school was hearing Woody Herman's band. They came to my high school and played a concert and did a clinic. And uh, during the concert, there were just tons of trombone solos. So I thought, well, that's that's the band to be in. So uh, when uh, I first started uh, pursuing all this, I really got into that band and all the solos. And it was a big inspiration to me to kind of go into jazz. Although my undergrad degree was... I started out as a music education major, thinking I'd be a band director or something. Um, But uh, throughout the course of that time at Ohio State, I got more and more deeply involved in jazz and also got a a jazz studies degree there to uh, that kind of propelled me on to uh, go to grad school at Eastman School of Music, uh, which is where a lot of folks that uh, went on Woody Herman's band at the time were coming out of. So that kind of gave me a pipeline to the band which I eventually got on, and I spent seven years with Woody Herman. Um, and uh, the second half of that seven years basically was his chief arranger and uh, musical director and uh, helped in the production of all his uh, recordings toward the end of his life. Okay, let's get into that. Yeah. So, actually first, were you in the marching band at Ohio State? I was not. Really? I was not. Okay. I was actually, actually, that was one of the... Uh, motivating factors to go there and uh i at the time it was a uh the band was 110 members and uh there were like 400 people that auditioned and i did not get in so uh and actually my first year at ohio state i didn't get into any of the major ensembles so i was like i said i was kind of a late bloomer but super motivated and uh that kind of helped uh Helped my cause along the way. I worked a lot harder, and uh, so sometimes it's 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 best not to to be at the top right away. No, that's 
really good to know. And then, now my <laughs> second year, when I probably could have gotten into the marching band, I, I decided that that wasn't for me anymore. I was I was more into pursuing the jazz. Okay, but what made what? How did you improve so much in a year then? Any secret? Uh, fear, basically. There were a lot of players that were better than me. Uh, at the end of the year, my uh, freshman jury, uh, I almost failed because a few of the uh, reviewers didn't think I was up to the task. Uh, but fortunately, my, my trombone teacher stuck up for me. And that summer, I just worked my tail off five, six hours a day practicing and uh, made great strides at that point, not only just technically, but, but also musically. Is that when you got into arranging? No, I didn't get into arranging till much, much later. Matter of fact, my entire undergraduate time, I did not do any writing. Um, I took one very basic arranging course at the end of my senior year at Ohio State, uh, but it, I didn't. I didn't really take to it. But when I went to Eastman for graduate school, um, they had one of the greatest uh, arranging teachers in the history of whatever, uh, Rayburn Wright, um, and his teaching style was very methodical and re really made a lot of sense to me. And that's when everything kind of clicked. So it really wasn't until graduate school that uh, I got into arranging and I was only there for a year before I went on the road with Woody Herman. So basically my first charts were for a professional level band. So it was kind of a trial by fire kind of a thing. That is literally amazing. <laughs> okay. So what made you go to Eastman and then we're going to go into that stuff because yeah, you're just giving The main reason I wanted to go to Eastman was because Woody Herman was getting all his trombone players from Eastman at the time. So I thought there's there's something there that uh, he likes and I should I should test it out and see what I could do. So my entire undergrad was really based on getting good enough to get into Eastman so I could get onto Woody Herman's band, basically. That was kind of what what I was shooting for. So um, but when I got there, I realized there not only was a great conservatory and I had a great trombone teacher in, in John Marcellus, but I also uh, had a great writing teacher and really a great overall jazz education there. So I learned quite a bit. So when I went on the road, I, I was really prepared to take what I had and and start using it. I had been in school basic because I got two degrees in, for my undergrad. I was in school basically for five years straight going in summer and everything just to uh, get all that done. So by the time I went on the road, I was ready to play. Okay. So you accomplished the goal to perform with Woody. How did you feel when you got that opportunity and how did it come about? Uh, well, I, I, when I got to Eastman, I met a lot of people that knew folks that were already on the road with, with that band. So when they passed through town, I, I went to a concert and went with some of my friends. They introduced me to people and that kind of, uh, I, I gave a, a tape of my playing to the, the trombonist in the band. And when they needed somebody, my name was kind of in contention for one, one of the positions and uh, I got hired. And it was, seems it seems kind of easy, but it was all really kind of planned out for four or five years. Okay, I mean, I'm just somebody that actually said that's what they wanted to do. They saw them, that got them motivated, and then you end up in the band. I think that's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I I always tell young students to, to really, if you have a, the ultimate goal, try to find out how people that reached that goal did it. And, and try and create ways so you can do the same thing. Uh, and 
for me, I've just, I found these little stepping stones that I thought if I get to here, I can get to here. And if I get to here, I can get to here, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the whole time working really hard and practicing and really listening a lot and trying to improve as much, much as I could. So how many shows were you doing roughly a year with them when you were performing? Well, we, we were on the road year round. So uh, the, the average was about 45 or 46 weeks out of the year. We were on a bus traveling. So we would play, you know, four to seven concerts a week, depending on what the schedule was like we, and how much we were traveling. Uh, so we were, we were playing, you know, fairly often, most, almost every night. And so you get a lot of, I got a lot of experience. And my also, one of my other goals on the band was to not just let that be the end all, uh, continue working and trying to improve and learn to new, do new, new, new and different things. Well, there are a lot of people that I speak to that are younger. When they actually finally finish their degree and they actually have to go out and perform, that is one thing that they hate to do. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you overcome that personally? Or were you just ecstatic the whole time? I was. <clears throat> the, the thing about those types of bands, because you are playing so often, it, you, you can get <clears throat> in a sense of complacency, complacency, where you're good enough for the gig and... Every night is fine and you sound great, but but uh, my goal was not to play this. My goal was to play a little different all the time to try and vary what I was playing. So I was, because I was still exploring. I wasn't by any means a fully formed jazz improviser. I had a good handle on things, but uh, I really wanted to get influences from a lot of people's music. And, you know, that takes time. So... When you get those influences, you have to try them out somewhere. And fortunately, on that particular big band, I had a lot of solos. And it was different than your average big band where you only have like 12 or 16 bars. There were longer solos. So you could, you could take your time and, and try, to, try to develop something you're working on. And of course, you go through cycles. You'll try something new and it won't work. And you'll get frustrated with it and you'll keep trying. And finally, it'll start to work. And then you'll get to the cycle where that bores you and you want to try something new. And it's just like this vicious circle. So I, over those seven years, I went through very many of those. Uh, in addition to about halfway through starting to apply the things I'd learned regarding composing and arranging for the band. I went about two and a half years before I wrote anything for Woody Herman's band. So what led you to actually write it? What, actually, I should say, what, when did you start writing? What made you actually start composing for them? And how did you become the music director? Well, at the time I joined, there was another person that was doing the writing, composing, arranging, who was basically the musical director. And at the time, I wasn't really interested in that. I was more interested in playing and uh, developing my improvisation and just my general musicianship skills. But uh, about two and a half years into my stay on the band, we did a location gig for five months. And I thought, well, if I'm going to ever try to write something for this band, this would be the time to do it because we were at, on location. We we're playing the same venue every night. So I could bring in little pieces of this or that for the band to play either before our performances or after and uh, kind of get uh, real life uh, experience as to writing for, for a group like that. And so that's when I started doing it. And then about six months after that, the person who was the musical director uh, left the band. His name was John Otto, and he was the pianist, and he left the band to uh, do a full-time gig working with Rosemary Clooney. So at, at that time, there was no one else writing for the band, so I was kind of the de facto uh, chief arranger. So Woody started giving me uh, 
giving me assignments and things like that. So I just kind of got thrown in once again, trial by fire. And I had never really written for any other group before, but I had been sitting in that band for, you know, close to three years listening to all those charts in his book, which were written by all the classic arrangers you could think of. So I got an idea in my head of what things should sound like every once in a while. If I didn't know how a writer was getting the sound, I could actually go to the music and look at the parts and see how he was getting a specific sound. So I learned so much. Uh, and then my, my uh, experience with Rayburn Wright at Eastman, he didn't have any books or anything out at the time. He does now, but at the time he didn't. All I had was my notes from class. So I had to try to uh, interpret those notes in a way that would uh, eventually turn into my own writing style. Okay. And like I say, man, that is, like I said, next level impressive. So when did you leave the band? When he passed, unfortunately? I, I left the band in 1987. So I went from 80 to 87. Woody passed away at, uh, at the end of 87. I left in uh, June of 87. So I uh, was with him for seven years, the last seven years of his life. And how was he as a person? He was actually really good. He, was, he, was, uh, he knew what he wanted, but he did not dictate to the band how to play. He would he would just trust and he would he would not hire he would not be in charge of hiring or, or, or anything either. He would trust the guys in the band to uh, know what the band needed and we would do the suggesting of who would get hired. Obviously the section leaders would have a greater say. Um, and then if somebody was hired and didn't sound the way he wanted to, well then he would say, let's make a change. But otherwise he would trust our judgment. And even on stage, if we were playing something in a way that he didn't like, he wouldn't say, I need you to do it this specific way. He would just say, you have to do it. You have to do it a different way. This isn't, it's not working like this. And then we'd figure it out. So the band had a real uh, spree de corps. You know, everybody realized it was our band as much as it was his. Okay. Well, so the funny thing about Woody is that there is a guy that came on the podcast a few weeks ago. Jason Burke, and he found his grandfather's old recordings from World War II. And right. his military band, his grandfather's military band, actually recorded, I think it was Rose O'Day or, or Do Nothing Till You Hear Me, Hear From Me, I think. Okay. Anita and, O'Day? Was it Anita O'Day? Yes, Anita. Yes. Yeah. And I'm just saying, so that is something else that just made me say, wow, with Woody. So that's a cool thing in yeah. general. Yeah. I have to talk to you more about that off the air because, you know. Yeah, I mean, he, he Woody started his first band in 1936. So he had a band for for over 50 years. So tons of experience. And as you can imagine, the, the library of music we would choose from each night was pretty elaborate, covering some of the, the you know, the, some of the greatest music ever written for big band. So it was a great experience. And before we get off Woody, I just one question. Did he have it? have any weird issues on modern music at the time? Because I know he was still alive when MTV took off. And that no, was actually, he was, he was really into that. Matter of fact, in the 70s, he got interested in uh, getting involved with young people, doing clinics at schools and things like that. So he was really uh, taken by the fact that young people were still interested in, in jazz, but in these new forms of music as well. So he was one of the first bands that did kind of crossover, 
you know, doing music that uh, either pop tunes or progressive jazz or fusion music uh, with a big band. So he was one of the first guys. He was he was kind of a trailblazer in that in that regard. And when he was, you know, as I mentioned, he started in 1936, but he was also one of the first bands to imp employ uh, bebop in in his band's language as well. So he he was always looking to see what was kind of next in line uh, regarding music, influential music and new waves. And he'd want his band to be in, involved in that. So we were, in addition to playing music from the 20s and 30s, we were also playing music by Chick Corea, John Coltrane. Um, we did a Steps Ahead tune. We were doing some uh, pop music from the, the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, so, so he was all involved in, in just music in general, and even even in, to some extent classical music. We were one of the last recordings done of Stravinsky's um, Ebony Concerto, which Woody recorded back in the uh, early days of his band. Um, and we re-recorded re it in 87, which uh, uh, we did a whole tour in 86 of that music and Woody wasn't up to playing the clarinet part and he got uh, Richard Stoltzman who's a, a wonderful clarinet uh, soloist to play his part and we toured several several tours in 86 and a little into 87 uh, playing not only our music but pairing it with uh, these class over, class, classical tunes and classical crossover kind of tunes with the band. And we recorded that album. It's under Richard Stoltzman's name, but uh, the name of the album is Ebony, and it features Richard w Stoltzman with the Woody Herman band. Okay, that's something I got to check out. I didn't yeah. know about that one. <laughs> well, yeah, so it was a Stravinsky piece written for Woody Herman's band, which was rare at the time. Stravinsky got interested in jazz, and Woody loved Stravinsky. And so he wrote a piece for Woody Herman's band. And I didn't know about this, so I kind of yeah. feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Into the Shadows. Yeah, sure. At uh, this it's time, a, it's doing great on the Jazz Week charts. I love yeah, it. it's, we've been in the top 15 or 20. Uh, I think we just, we after 11 weeks on the charts, we dipped down to 17 last week. But before that, we were in the top 15 for, for over 10 weeks. And uh, the album came out July 17th. And we recorded it last fall, last October. Um, I had written some new music for the group last May of 2019. I did a artist retreat in upstate New York where I basically got in the woods in a cabin for two weeks just writing music and tried to come up with some things that were a little bit different than what we had done in the past. And they all seemed to work pretty well for the group. And we basically did two nights in a club. And the following week, we went into the studio and pretty much played the recording straight down. It was, uh, there's eight tunes on the record and we, we were out of the studio in six hours. So, uh, including a dinner break. That's so, how you so do it. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, and of course the band's been playing together for almost 20 years now. So everybody knows what everybody's inclinations are. And those two nights in the club really helped uh, clear up any, any conceptual things we wanted to deal with. So, uh, we recorded end of October, and the the album was slated to be released in July. And about middle of May, I got contacted by the the record company to say, should we hold off on this because of the pandemic? And you know, I had public publicists and radio promoters ready to go. Um, 
because they were concerned, you know, because because of the pandemic. But I said, you know, I don't think so. I think we should go move forward because this is the this is the time when music means more than anything to the general public because they've got all this time on their hands and everyone's listening more. And as great as all these things online, uh, people throwing videos up and, you know, quarantine videos and things like that, uh, it's it's somewhat uh, uh, amateur level recording quality or even video quality, but the recording quality, especially, you're not doing it from a recording studio. The equipment's probably a little under par. People's, you know, your your basic musician has now turned themselves into someone, you know, an engineer, which that's not their expertise either. So I thought this is really important to get something out of professional quality onto the airwaves because. I noticed that the DJs on the jazz radio stations were basically playing old recordings, which are great, but there was nothing new for them to share. So uh, I said, let's let's move forward with this and let's let it out. And and it's had great response. A lot of stuff on that. First of all, I'm glad you did that. Thank Alpha you. Dog, I listened to like 2,000 times. Oh, cool. I really love that track on there. <laughs> Next Thanks. thing is, everything you said about the recording you know, like the quarantine recordings and everything. I yeah. agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. And it's just not the same. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's just not the same. And uh, un- the unfortunate byproduct that I'm hoping doesn't happen is that the general public takes, take that, takes that as being what music is now. And on top of that, the general public thinking that, wow, all these musicians they don't really, they're not making any money from this, but they're just doing it because they love to do it. So we don't, why do we need to support them? Let's just take what they're giving us for free. So so I, I think it's really important that everybody realizes that even these people that are posting these things and, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to stay alive, basically. They want to stay visible. Because as a friend of mine says, if you're not appearing, you're disappearing. So everyone's just trying to remind everyone that they're still out there. So when the, the doors do open again, I hope that the general public will will go out and support their favorite musicians and not only listen to their recordings, but buy their recordings and support them financially as well. Because there's a lot of people that are, that some some good friends of mine have actually left town because they can't afford to be here right now. And, and the people that are sticking it out are, it, it's a waiting game and it's kind of like a ticking time bomb whether they have enough savings to keep going or if they're going to have to do something else to make a living. So it's really important that, that when things start up again, really uh, I implore upon the general public that's listening to this to, to especially these young upstarting musicians, please, please, please support them and uh, give them a chance to be as creative as they can. I agree with you. I fear that a lot of these jazz clubs are just not going to open up when we, they finally are able to. Yeah, one of my favorite jazz clubs that I've played at many times is called Smalls here in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just posted today that they're allowed to have an audience of 15 people in the club. So if you figure that... That's killing if, them. Yeah, I mean, just, just to keep the doors open is is going to cost them more than 15 covers. So... I'm sure they're going to charge by the show so they can quadruple that, but that's still a small crowd and they got to pay the musicians. So it's, it's a, it's a tough, but I'm just so glad that they're able to have some people in there and get something going. 
on a good day, Smalls holds maybe like 100, 120 people. Per set. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're hanging in there. And I hope uh, every other club does too, because nobody's able to do anything. I mean, the, the clubs that do serve food are able to have, you know, they can serve dinner outdoors or something like that, but they're, they can't really have live music on the streets. Yeah, I just don't know, because I didn't think this thing would be continuing into October. It looks like it's going to continue into the end of the year, so I do not know. Yeah, and, uh, you know, for other musicians, you know, for many jazz musicians, not myself, but many jazz musicians to, to stay afloat do things other than jazz. They, they play Broadway shows, they play chamber music, they play live gigs. All of those are gone now, too. So my wife plays on Broadway. In addition to having her own jazz group, she plays on Broadway. And uh, she was given notice that her show will not even consider rehearsing to reopen until March. So she's looking at late spring or summer before she's, you know, back employed by them. And who knows what's going to happen with a second wave or anything like that. So we're just keeping our fingers crossed as our many professional musicians here in New York that are, you know, have made their living off of large gatherings, basically, you know? Uh, yeah. Like I said, that's just a depressing part of this music right now. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it's, it's very depressing, but it's also very uplifting to see that people do love playing and, and making music so much that they're sticking it out because, because the end result is going to, is going to feel so good when, when they get to that point. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I'm going to say about Into the Shadows, hopefully you get your third Grammy nominee, if not finally your first official one under your thing. Well, I've, I've gotten two nominations for myself, uh, two nominations for Woody, for the work I did with Woody Herman's band, but uh, we've never gotten past the, the final five uh, nominees. You know, it boils down to four or five nominees and then, one person gets the, the trophy. But to, as everybody says, and I, I do believe it's true, it, of course it'd be great to win, but it is, it is quite an honor to be included amongst the five best of anything. So, uh, and this is a small group album, so we'll see, we'll see. But uh, it's, it's just nice that it's getting a nice, it's getting good attention and uh, nice reviews and things like that. So it's just a reaffirming that that uh, we're, you know, the, the members of my group are all feeling good about that, and that that uh, we we put something together we can be proud of. All right, all right. Now, one thing I just need to know, okay? How is the sure. jazz scene in Cleveland? The jazz scene in Cleveland is actually good. I, you know, I grew up in Cleveland, and I lived there uh, until I went to college. I went to Ohio State in Columbus, but uh, so I never really worked in Cleveland. But I know many folks that do. There's a great jazz orchestra there, the Cleveland Jazz Orchestra, that's uh, full of talented players. So uh, I, I would have to say, if you go to Cleveland and there's a chance to hear the Cleveland Jack, Jazz Orchestra, you should check it out because there's some really fine musicians there. Same as, Col and, and in Columbus, same thing. Columbus Jazz Orchestra, and there's a really healthy club scene in Columbus. So most people get started thinking, you know, when you think about jazz, you think about New York and LA and maybe Chicago or whatever, but, but there's places all over the world with great players. And fortunately there's, there are spots in Ohio that have really healthy uh, jazz scene and, and really, really talented jazz players. 
Okay. Well, what is something that people seem to misunderstand about the music world? About the music world? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I would say in, in, in jazz especially, the biggest misunderstanding is that jazz musicians kind of just, this stuff comes out of the air that we play when we improvise. And uh, it's, it really does involve incredible, incredible amounts of knowledge and study and uh, information about harmony and melody and, and just doing things over and over again, trial, trial and error. So it's not like, <clears throat> yes, we are all very fortunate that we have a skill that uh, we can use to make music, but it's something we have over the years taught ourselves and uh, it's not a magic trick. I mean, yeah, I get to me about the improvisation part. Yeah, some people think you just go up there and just play random notes and it works. But nothing about the financial part or the management part? or Well, any of, that stuff? of course, yeah. I mean, the, you can't go into a town to be a freelance musician and hand someone your diploma. You know, it's all about experience, uh, professionalism, and uh, interpersonal relationships. You have to be able to... Uh, deal with people on, on a human level, because I, I know some fantastic musicians that are just not so fantastic humans. And uh, those people end up just being, having to go somewhere and just do what they do artistically in their own little tiny little bubble, whereas they could be here in New York making music with some of the, the greatest musicians in the world. So, so it's really important when you come to a, a city to be a musician that you are aware it's it's more than just sitting in a practice room and getting really good. It's it's also about uh, learning how to interact with people, how to, for instance, when I moved to New York, I only knew a handful of people, but I had some experiences working with Woody Herman. So I had kind of a, you know, I could give someone a CD and say, this is all my writing, my playing. Um, I helped produce this, blah, blah, blah. So it was like kind of like an audio business cards. So you need to have those types of things together, but you also need to be able to call up a person you've never spoken to before or walk up to someone on the bandstand that you've never met before and uh, create a rapport. So they trust that you're going to uh, do your job in the way, if like if you were going to be filling in for somebody or if you're just meeting someone for the first time that you seem trustworthy and you're, you act in a professional manner because the first gigs you get in any town are through recommendation and usually filling in for someone. So they're not going to want to send someone who doesn't, you're basically representing this other person. So uh, it's really important that you have those skills together, more, sometimes almost more than the musical skills, because in New York, it's just a given that everybody's a good player. But it's just a matter of how you interact with everyone that kind of puts you over the top. Okay, so if I come up to you and be like, John, I want to be in your big band. What are you looking for? Well, first of all, you wouldn't say that. Oh, okay. You would just, you just, you would just introduce yourself and, and tell me what instrument you play and uh, you're, new to, you, you're new in town and, and you love the band and uh, let, let me know even if you're rehearsing, I'll come by a rehearsal. And then you start to get to know the people in the group. And then once they get to know you, oh, oh this guy plays, you know, whatever, you know, let's, let's have him come in. We'll, we'll have him play a rehearsal for free and we'll get to hear what he sounds like. And uh, then maybe the next rehearsal, you get to, get to play a solo, or maybe someone's not there, you get moved up to the lead chair, something like that. So 
so it's it's it goes by smaller increments than just hi I, w- I want to play on your band you know uh, you know you you want to you don't wouldn't go up to Miles Davis and say I want to play on your band because he would just write you off and in no uncertain terms mm-hmm. uh, so you 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 want to be you want to take those small steps you don't want to scare anybody off you don't want the people that are the regulars on the band think you're stealing their gig so you want to you want to create this friendly welcoming demeanor you want to be able to tell people that you love what they do and you you at at some time would love to to be part of it in any way possible and then let the chips fall where they may you know and stay in stay in touch go hear the person play uh whenever you can make sure you make keep those connections going so they remember your face with your name and then you know you get to a point where you can give them a recording of your playing or email them something but I wouldn't do that right away. I'd, I'd wait for a couple of visits before you come on too strong. That's very informative, at least for the younger people who listen. Yeah. You also just checked me also, just so you guys know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, And I guess the other thing I would say to young musicians, everybody's really anxious to post videos of themselves on, on it, the internet. And a lot of that stuff lives there forever. So. Don't put anything up too early that you're going to regret it <laughs> later on. You know what I mean? So make make sure you're really proud of what you put up there. Don't just put anything up there uh, that by, would by any means give anybody just the smallest amount of uh, question regarding your playing. You know, try and keep it as uh, musical and technically sound as possible because people will scrutinize, especially if you're in line to to do something with them or in place of them. We're also jazz musicians. They could be very petty. So I feel you on that. Well, it's just, it's such a, a subjective art form. You know, you could, you could play something that's killing and someone may not dig it. So just make sure that it's really strong. It's a really strong statement and then, and then stand by it. Okay. So where do you think jazz would be in 10 years? Because even before Corona, I felt that there was a massive decline. Well, and not in New York. I think in New York, it's still very strong. Um, there's a lot of really young and, and innovative new players and writers coming up that uh, are not household names now. But in New York, they're highly respected and I'm sure will, over time, be more well-known. So it's really strong here. And to be honest, I think the, the pandemic it may end up making it stronger in some ways. It will have the people that really, really want to do it, putting their 100%, 110% into their music. And then the, it will have the people that maybe were just thinking, oh, it's a living. Maybe they don't stick around and, and it kind of leaves room for some other folks to, to come in. So yeah, I think it, it could be a, an interesting thing when this all lifts because the, the people that are left standing are going to be the ones that just really, really believe in what they're doing. And of course, once it's able to, once, once the doors open again, they're, you're going to, they're going to be chomping at the bit to play and, and uh, playing with a, a passion that maybe they didn't have before all this, because it's so, they everyone so appreciates the opportunity to play that uh, once they get it, it's going to be, 
it's going to be their A game. Okay. So, have you ever been invited to play on any non-jazz albums? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a, stu- as a studio musician in New York early on, I, I played on quite a few Any big like ones that, that we might Well, I played, I played on, well, I, it's not really non-jazz, but I, I played on Tony Bennett's last Grammy-winning record. I played with, uh, I played gigs with Grand Funk Railroad, nice. you know, people like that, <laughs> Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know, things like that. They're, they're more, you know. Blood, Sweat, and Tears is more jazzy, but it's not a jazz band. Um, and I, I did a lot of commercial work playing on movies and things like that that were more classically bent a little bit. Um, I played on the soundtrack for the Samuel L. Jackson version of Shaft, which was, that was a few years ago. But and I'm on, uh, the, you know, some other big orchestrated things like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Cape Fear with uh, Robert De Niro. But that was an enormous orchestra and a giant soundstage. Um, you know, so a wide variety of things, yeah. That is. So you're very diverse. And technically, indirectly, you won a Grammy then. Yeah. Well, I was on the record, so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I'm not going to take credit for it until my name's on the trophy. I like your attitude. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever turned down any offers? For? Any plane. Uh, yeah, on occasion, sure. Yeah, uh, certain things that I didn't feel strongly about musically, or certain things that I didn't feel strongly about uh, how they were being handled professionally. Not just about how what it paid, but but uh, if things seem kind of flighty, um, you know, unorganized or uh, not really considerate of the musicians, I, I'd rather not get involved with that because it's just frustrating and I'd rather not take a gig and be angry about it. So in, in those, in those cases, uh, I'll just pass. Okay. So if you could turn back time and talk to your 18 year old self, would you talk them out of being a musician? No, I, I would probably uh, tell myself to get writing sooner um, to, I, th- I think that's the key to in- independence really is, is writing your own material. I think that's the case in most of the arts. Otherwise you're, you're ba- basically just playing a waiting game for someone to call you up and hire you. But, but if you have your own material, you can have your own groups, you can promote yourself, you can, you have your own product. So I think that's really important to, to stay alive in, in a freelance kind of world, unless, unless you're a non-jazz player. Uh, I would still recommend if you're like a symphony player, find ways to create a chamber chamber music group or play play in some quartets or quintets where you can kind of market your own product. Because especially being a trombone player, it's not the, the instrument that's in everybody's band. And it's many times if it is in a band, it's the last one considered with a small group at least. So finding ways to to create music throughout your own types of things is, is really important. So writing your own material and, and leading your own groups, I think is really important to not only keep you involved in the music world, but it can, it also, uh, you know, gives you opportunities to uh, diversify in what you're doing to create your own product and, and basically advertise what, what it is you do best. Fair, fair. Yeah, I agree on the 
if you were composing early, I could only imagine the stuff you would have been coming up with. Well, I would, I, 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 it would have taken, I would have gotten to where I got sooner. That's, that's all. That's the only difference. Okay. You're very modest. I love that too. (laughs) If you could remove all the barriers, all constraints, what type of project would you do and who would be on it? Well, I mean, there's, there's so many great players here in New York. You know, it's hard. I love all the guys in my big band. Yeah. It would be great to do something with two full big bands because uh, there's so many players that and the great thing about my big band is as much as I love a lot of the new up and coming players and some players that came before me, uh, the players that have been in my big band have been the same players for close to 30 years now. So not only do I love the way they play, but they've all been super loyal to me. So I would not want to do a large ensemble project without involving them as well. So a double big band or some kind of thing where that involves a big band with, a, a large ensemble with uh, more than a big band's worth of horns and rhythm section, you know, a larger production would probably be first and foremost on my list. Cause that, that would also give me opportunities to write for some new situations too. And I'm always looking for that. Understood. Understood. What's the best compliment you ever received? Oh, that's, that's tough. I don't really log those in as well as I do the, the criticisms. Um, okay, then which criticism stuck with you the longest? Um, well, I mean, one of the first ones was by Woody Herman when I joined his band. I, when I joined his band, uh, one of the first solos I played was uh, something that was like very, very traditional. And after the gig was over, he came up and he said, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't funky enough. You want... You know, he wanted it to be really funky and bluesy. And he said, if you can't do that, we're going to do something about it. So once again, <clears throat> it was kind of like me in, in college. You know, someone was going to threaten to take away what I wanted to do. So, of course, I delved into that deeper and and improved greatly on that within 24 hours. And he was happy the next night. <laughs> That's nice. But I mean, I guess the greatest compliment is is getting nominated for a Grammy. And that, because that's coming from multiple people. Uh, over a specific thing, so it's it's not as subjective because because it's a large group of people voting amongst you know hundreds of entries, and uh, it boils down to these five people that have been voted by all the voters. So uh, that's a pretty big compliment. Okay, okay. So, sir, I just need to know, being the percussionist himself. He played with T.S. Monk. How is he? Yeah. Oh, he's great. He's a, he's a really fun guy. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the music we played in his band was pretty special. You know, his father's music, um, really, really special music. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big Monk fan. So, uh, you know, the first tour I did with that band, we did three weeks in Europe and, you know, just, just immersed in Monk's music, which was fantastic. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's always a fun group to play with, and uh, he's a he's a great leader. He's he's dialed into the musicians. He's not he's he's not leading leading with an iron fist. He he wants everyone to have fun, and and as long as the, the spirit of his father's music is there, he's happy, as we all are. All right, sir. Well, that means a 
lot to know. Now, here is just a question for you. Do you agree with this statement? Because I have this guy who keeps emailing me this stuff. I call him the legendary troll. And a lot of his stuff seemed to have some truth in it. He okay. says, only jazz would give awards to people who sold so few records and call themselves winners. Well, you can say that, but you could also say that about many of the other categories in the, in the Grammys. I mean, you get awards for best children's spoken word recording, you know, th those aren't million sellers. Um, you know, best bluegrass, you know, alternative for whatever. There's so many, there's so many different categories. Um, but to be honest, the, th the thing about the awards is, is it's not about selling the recordings. It's, it's as, I mean, it basically serves the same purpose as the recording is it's, it's advertising for your product, which is you performing live. And over the years, even the, the, the big rock and pop acts have learned this. So some of them to the point of even giving their music away for free to get, to draw people into their giant stadium concerts, you know, so that's where they make the money. Now it's the recording industry is not what it was years ago. Uh, it's more about performing live, which is why this pandemic has hit musicians so hard because that other revenue stream is now gone. So um, the awards are great the, because they draw attention to some of the finer recordings or, or whatever that have, that have been done in the past year. And it, in hopes that that will generate live performance opportunities for the artists. So that's, that's really what it's about. It's, it's not really about selling albums. These days, the albums, many people don't even have a disc drive in their computer anymore to play a CD, but, but I still have CDs because when I play these live events, it's like a, it's like a souvenir. People want to take a souvenir home from the gig. And uh, so it's something they can buy that they can have and, and take with them and you can sign it. And it's, it's a nice thing. I mean, the one thing I talked about recently to somebody is the idea of the selfie. You know, when people, see someone famous, the first instinct now is to get a selfie with them, which is great. It's a picture of you with this famous person. But think about someone that has Charlie Parker's autograph, what that is worth, as opposed to a picture of them standing with Charlie Parker, which would be great too. But say you pass away, you leave that to your, your son or daughter or your wife or whatever, uh, it could be worth some big money if you had like a, an original, like a, a, a really pristine autograph by Benjamin Franklin or something, you know, whereas if someone had a picture of them, okay, that's nice, but it's, you know, some, some things are invaluable. So I, I, I tell young people, make sure you still get an autograph every once in a while, because these people aren't going to be around forever. And the selfie is great. You can say you were with them, but uh, it's also nice to have something of value too. Beautiful answer. <laughs> I can't say anything <laughs> on that. So before you go, we normally like to give a shout out and show our respects to the artists that came before us. I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. You tell me which one you prefer. And if you wish, tell us why. Okay. Okay. I'll try. I mean, I'll make it somewhat easier for you because, you know, you play with all these guys still for the most part. So we'll do an older group. 
on trumpet? Dizzy Gillespie or Louis Armstrong? See, that's that's apples and oranges there. I mean, they're both giants. Uh, I would say uh, between the two, I was more influenced by Dizzy just because I came from a later time that was drawing more uh, melodic material from the beboppers. So I, I would say between the two, I love them equally. Uh, but between the two, maybe Dizzy influenced me a little bit more than, than Louis. Okay. Stan Gatz or Lester Young? Once again, same thing. Uh, they both have their own. I mean, Stan Getz was influenced by Lester Young, so I guess you got to give it to Lester Young. Um, okay. Um, but but Stan played on Woody Herman's band and became a star at the age of 19, uh, playing in that style in that band. And, and he did do some innovative things, um, fusing with Bossa Nova and things like that. So he was a trailblazer in that re re respect as well. Okay. On keys, Bill Evans or Count Basins? Wow. I mean, they were both very economical players, both very musical players. Um, I'd say regarding the writing part of my career, it was more influenced by Basie's band. But as far as my improvisation, maybe more influenced by Bill Evans' soloing. So it's a toss-up there. Okay. On bass, Ray Brown or Paul Chambers? Well, well, I'm, I, I love them both. And once again, Paul Chambers was influenced by Ray Brown. But uh, uh, Paul Chambers, once again, kind of a similar thing. Ray Brown is just stylistically perfection. And, and it's the same with, with uh, Paul Chambers. Paul, I'd have to say Paul Chambers as far as the way I solo uh, once again, kind of coming out of the bebop, hard bop kind of a thing. Uh, I'm, more, I'm, I'm more akin to playing that way. But uh, once again, I love them both, and all the recordings they're both on are impeccable. Okay. On drums, Max Roach or Buddy Rich? Uh, I probably lean toward Max on that one. Um, I, just because I'm I more of became more of a fan of uh, small group playing and the, the stuff he did with Clifford Brown is some of the strongest small group jazz playing uh, I've ever heard. So, and he was also, he played with Charlie Parker. And so he went up through the ranks and created his own style. That's really recognizable. Um, I love buddies playing. I love buddies band, but uh, I think Max gets the edge. Okay. And finally on trombone. Glenn Miller or Al Gray? Well, I got to go with Al Gray. I mean, Glenn Miller was a great band leader. Um, interesting thing, in the 40s, the two biggest stars in pop music were trombone players, Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey, which will probably never, ever, ever happen again. <laughs> um, he was a great band, band leader, but he didn't really solo in his band, and he didn't feature his trombone playing, so I don't I'm really know... Uh, expert on knowing how well he played the instrument, but I know Al Gray played a whole hell of a lot of trombone and he's one of my favorites. Okay, so I give you two trombonists then that are known for showboating then, that are just class. Trombone well, I, Shorty? Okay. Or Ray Anderson? Wow. Well, once again, two very different players. Uh, I gotta say, I think I give it to Ray. Uh, 
those who haven't heard him do everything uh, other than his uh, more abstract explorations, uh, he can also play very, very bluesy and uh, can play pretty funky too, but it's just not common knowledge amongst a lot of listeners. Uh, and then plus he can do all that other stuff and his, his level of technique is, is crazy good. So I think in that respect, and, and I'm probably, I probably lean more toward, uh, his, uh, the groups he's played in. So I probably give it to Ray. That is fair, man. And that's my former teacher in undergrad. So you know what? I give you that. All right. Nice. <laughs> so could you tell the people where to find you, your website, your social media, et cetera? Yeah, uh, well, johnfedjock.com. You can also find me on uh, Facebook. But on uh, my website, you can find links to pretty much everything. My writing, my playing, my big band, um, my, my sextet, my quartet. Uh, there's video there. There's interviews. There's all kinds of great stuff you can find if uh, you're at all listening. And there's also a, a schedule of performances. There's not much on the books right now, but I did just perform last night and I'm doing something this coming. I'm not sure when this podcast will air, but uh, on the 25th, there'll be a podcast with Gary Smolian, one of the great bass, uh, Barry sax players. Um, he's, he's recreating an album he did um, that's just released called Night Talk. And it's with a, I believe it's a 10 piece group. And we're doing a socially distanced uh streaming event on the 25th of October. I believe it's at four o'clock. Okay. Yeah. That means a lot. I'll be sure to check that out. If not, yeah, I'll and be sure the link for that will be on my website. Yeah. I was about to say, I'll make sure these people know about the link. Yeah. Okay. Well, everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you John, for being with us. Everyone. Thanks for having me. Yes. Have a good night. Bye-bye. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>